Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. If you've ever gotten a friendly text message from a seemingly wrong number, you might have been a target of the latest industrial-scale scam targeting wealthy individuals around the world. Known as pig butchering, this complex crime has become intertwined with crypto, and I wanted to learn more about it. So today I'm joined by Alistair McCready, Southeast Asia editor at Vice World News. He's based in Cambodia and has been investigating this scam from its source. Alistair explains how scammers ensnare their victims by first building friendship and sometimes even romance. We also learn that many of the scammers are victims themselves, having been trafficked and held against their will, forced to work for organized crime. Some estimates put the profits from this scheme at more than a billion dollars. If you want to go deeper on this topic, the link to Alistair's feature on pig butchering that was published in Vice News can be found in the show notes. This week, we're tackling a topic that I've got a personal interest in, having uh, been an attempted target of one of these uh, one of these scams. I'm joined by uh, someone that I think has recently become an expert in this area, Alistair McReady, Southeast Asia editor for Vice World News. Alistair, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Thanks, Ian. I only recently learned this term a couple weeks back. Someone on my team brought up pig butchering. And I have to admit, the first time I heard it, I immediately went to the process that starts the effort that ends up with bacon on my plate. And obviously, I was I was very, very wrong about what my colleague was talking about. I've since jumped into the subject and read quite a lot of your reporting. Maybe we could start there. What is this pig butchering topic and dive in from there? So pig butchering is a relatively novel online scam that has evolved from industrial scale hubs in Southeast Asia. Cambodia has become a major, major hub of it, Myanmar and Laos too. I guess what differentiates it is, I mean, the name pig butchering suggests it's a kind of fattening up of victims. It's a, a far more subtle, a far more kind of long game kind of scam in which intimate relationships are built with people Scripts are used, sophisticated scripts are used in which people are kind of slowly enticed into investing in certain schemes. Often it's around cryptocurrency. It can also be online gambling, but crypto has become a major part of it. Um, I think what distinguishes it is is just the kind of scale of it. The human trafficking involved, uh, the large teams behind these scammers, they're essentially kind of criminal enterprises, major, major scams with different layers of, of workers. People assign different roles in the scam. Yeah, I, I guess that about captures it. The big difference that I think I wasn't aware of until I started looking into the subject a little bit is this is happening at industrial scale. Reading your article, I was sort of blown away at the losses that individuals had taken. And then a few of the people you interviewed who have created support groups because of the number of people who have been victims of these schemes. I mean, just just give us a sense of what we're talking about here. This is not a few dollars lost accidentally on the Internet, is it? These are centers in Southeast Asia. In a, a town called Sihanoukvo in Cambodia, there are converted casino sites, converted condos, capable of housing thousands and thousands of workers. The exact scale of it is not known. Obviously, with a kind of underground industry like this, it's not going to be easy to put firm figures on it, but it's easily into the thousands, potentially tens of thousands. And the best estimates we have are these workers are stealing, on average, a few hundred dollars a day each, which is very accomplishable. That, that's a, a small, easily done figure. And when you convert that into 10,000 people, say, that's, that's a figure nearing a billion dollars over the course of a year. 10,000 people is a very conservative estimate for the number of 
scammers there are in Cambodia alone. There's probably, estimates would suggest there's probably a similar number of people doing the same thing in Laos, similar number of people doing the same thing in, in Myanmar. I'd say conservative estimates would put the money being stolen here into the billions, several billions. That is staggering. And and what I realized after learning about this tactic was I had actually been getting the first message that would tip into the scam. And so I, I imagine our listeners might have gotten some of these as well. I posted on Twitter about it a few weeks ago and sharing one of the text messages I had gotten that was the entry point, I think, into one of these conversations. And I got quite a few replies back saying, oh, wow, I've gotten those too. Uh, so if you've ever gotten a text from a number you didn't know that you know suggested you had met the person on the other side of it, a name you don't recognize, maybe you've told them, hey, you, ha- you have the wrong number, you know, please don't text me again. And suddenly they try and strike up a conversation. You too have probably been the target of one of these scams. That's the entry point. Yeah. And you know what, what's so successful about this scam? It's so much more subtle. You're not getting an email saying you've got, there's a million dollars that needs releasing in a bank account in Switzerland. I don't know who falls for that stuff and why those emails still get sent. But this is just kind of subtle little messages like on WhatsApp. Like One of the sources, Cindy, said I've never received the wrong message on WhatsApp. I've never received the wrong message on WhatsApp either. And these messages are just saying very innocuous stuff. It was great to meet you at the party the other night. It'd be lovely to meet up again. And, and that seems totally innocuous. It's the kind of thing that you could easily imagine striking up a conversation about. And if you were the kind of person who was kind of looking for some sort of connection, you could see how you'd be easily lured in, sucked in by a seemingly innocuous conversation with a nice person. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was struck by every person that you featured in the, in the article they weren't unsophisticated, right? They were all professionals. Many of them had access to significant means, you know, all well-educated. This wasn't, you know, my grandmother getting tricked with a camera that kind of overwhelmed her by her lack of like technical knowledge or something like that. This was social engineering at its finest is what it seemed like. What is kind of distinguishing feature of pig butchering is, is the flexibility of it. It's not, they don't have a kind of one track route in which they scam people. They'll just read you. They'll read what your trigger points are, your pressure points, and they'll, they'll adjust and adapt based on that. It wasn't, it's not strictly romance. It's not strictly investment. It's not strictly one thing or the other. They just sense what your trigger points are. They read you. With Cindy, the, the lawyer who lost $2.7 million dollars, I featured in my article, she was going through cancer treatment and they they tapped in on that. They became like a source of comfort, like a stable presence where she would, they would know when her appointments were, they would message her saying, how did your appointment go? That's not even romance. That's just, I'm tapping into this huge vulnerability you're experiencing right now and I'm, I'm gonna pretend I care. A big feature of it is messaging good night, good morning, which seems like a small thing, but it's a subtle relationship building. And it really isn't just as obvious as we're going to start a relationship here with a, a fake woman. It could be a, a female-on-female relationship was something I heard about quite a lot, like a sisterly relationship, a brotherly relationship, an investment relationship. One of the people who got scammed was, uh, they met them on LinkedIn and uh, their LinkedIn profile, the scammer's LinkedIn profile listed them as going to the same university in the si- and then working at the same company as the person who was scammed. And that forged a connection there. They bonded over their, mu- their mutual work experience and their mutual educational experience. A lot of it wasn't romantic, or well, not strictly romantic. 
That's incredible. So once they built that layer of trust and established that emotional bond, romantic or not, how did they actually start making money off the scheme? Like, was there a single tactic or were there multiple paths that they were using to extract funds from their victims? I'd say it would take a few weeks for anything to be raised at all. That's what's good about it. It's not the email saying, we need your funds, transfer this, that. But about three weeks in was the average I heard. Three weeks to a month in where they'd subtly raise investment opportunities. One person I spoke to said that they developed this romantic relationship with a woman they thought was in Singapore. And then one night they were having a conversation. She said, sorry, give me 30 minutes. I need to go and do something. She came back and inevitably he asked, oh, what were you up to? And she said, oh, sorry, my uncle just came over to talk to me about crypto investment. We both started that recently. And then she's like, oh, have you ever heard about it? It's extremely subtle. It wasn't you should invest in crypto. It's I'm investing in crypto. Are you interested in hearing about my experiences, what I'm doing? Another subtle aspect of it is it's never transfer me money. It's I'm investing through this website. I'm getting some good returns. Do you want me to send you the link? Just like a friend would, just like a romantic interest would. It's never you need to send me money. That's avoided at all costs by the sounds of it. The notion of send me money. Psychological warfare at its finest here, right? They've got uh, absolutely, yeah. They're picking up on people's trigger points. They're avoiding the obvious pitfalls where where a red flag would go off and you say, "Hey, mm. oh, I've only known this person for three or four weeks." And the scammers then have obviously set up a fictitious investment platform that they says, "Oh yeah, I'm putting my money here." Passes along a link, and then the victim is going and creating an account, and presumably they start depositing funds at some point. What happens then? Is it is it one and done and everybody disappears or is there a longer longer yeah. arc to the story? A lot of it revolves around legitimate wallets, like crypto wallets. So that adds another layer of kind of authenticity to it. So Coinbase was one I heard was used a lot. You'd set up a Coinbase account, which would then be linked to a fake website, a fake investment website. One of the victims, Cindy, gave me access to her account, the fake crypto website account. And I logged in and it, it looks pretty professional. You can see the, the wallet with USDT sitting in there, with Ethereum sitting in there. It's essentially just charts showing your, your winnings. It was like little bits of money being dropped into their account. And the way they get you is it's linked to Coinbase, which is legitimate. So that adds the kind of authentic factor. You can withdraw directly to your, your Coinbase wallet. That They allow you to withdraw back to your Coinbase wallet, back and forth, depositing back and forth. That's the, a key thing that gains people's trust is they allow you to withdraw for the first few weeks of this. So it feels legitimate. And then you sink more money in because you think my money's safe. My money is, is accessible. My money isn't beyond my reach. I can always withdraw it if I feel like something's fishy. And so that's how they lure you in. People generally start small and then after a few weeks, you start to sink more and more money in. They don't pull the rug straight away. I think the tactic is that I heard from people who have been scammed, then the people who are investigating it, is that they entice you more and more until they think they've tapped you out and there's no more money to come. And that's when they pull the rug and they withdraw all your cash. So they let your cash sit there as long as it needs to sit there until they think they've really tapped you out. And that's when they withdraw. There's no rush. That's a defining factor of this well, as well as there's no rush. If they think they can get more money out of you, they'll let your cash sit there. It's incredible the the psychological sophistication of this scam, right? I mean, as you're describing it, I can imagine 
how easy it is for people to get into it. I think about people I know who were not victims of a scam like this, but were legitimately investing in crypto following exactly the pattern that you described. They hear about it from a friend. They open an account on a trustworthy, regulated, legitimate exchange. They buy some Bitcoin or Ethereum. Then they hear about you know a great investment opportunity. So they move some money into it. We saw in the, in the crypto world, there was this huge collapse recently of the Terra Luna ecosystem where kind of $48 billion evaporated overnight. I knew people who had money invested into those cryptocurrencies and they got almost the exact same pattern that you described here. That was how they went into it, right? Small amounts of money over time, saw significant returns, got comfortable, moved more and more money in, feeling like it was low risk. They were in control and then all of a sudden, well, there was nothing left. But in this case, you know, it was a consciously malicious act. Uh, as you described earlier, this this industrial scale operation happening behind the scenes of a seemingly friendly relationship that was driving this. The other thing I was, I was so blown away by was the gentleman, uh, Mr. Tan, and his experience being dragged into the, into the operation. I'd love if you could tell that story because it was just so incredible to me. So Bill Tan was a, or is a Malaysian, a Malaysian man who was trafficked to Cambodia. So he found a job on an online job portal, a legitimate online job portal in Malaysia, advertising customer service role in, in Sihanoukville, Cambodia. He did a couple of online interviews. It was with a Malaysian firm. He trusted that the job was legitimate. It was a well-paying job. And so he flew over to Cambodia for it. And he said that as soon as he arrived, he was met at the airport in Phnom Penh by four men. And he instantly had a very sinking feeling that things weren't right. He drove down to Sihanoukville from Phnom Penh, which is about a four or five hour drive. And they instructed him not to ask questions. They were very shady on details. They were just a lot more hostile than he was expecting. And so he instantly was very wary, started recording, started taking photos, started kind of tracking what was going on. He was taken to a scam compound called the Victory Paradise Resort in Sihanoukville. From there, the bait and switch became evident around the job. And he was told that he wouldn't be doing customer service stuff. He would need to learn how to scam people, essentially. He'd need to learn scripts. He'd need to learn how to use platforms. And he'd be targeting Malaysians and Singaporeans. His job was to get people to sign up. His job was to identify people on Facebook, Twitter, Tinder, whatever, whatever platforms he could he could use and um, lure them into investing in cryptocurrency, lure, lure them into investing in into playing like online gambling websites, which were fraudulent. And from there, he was forced to stay. He had no choice over the matter. His passport was confiscated. He was constantly threatened with violence. He was locked in his room, locked in this resort, told he couldn't leave. And um, he eventually escaped with the help of someone on the inside who he asked me not to name or reveal, but um, managed to get back to uh, Phnom Penh. From there, he fled back to Malaysia and he's been speaking to the press. He's since been told to recant his story by the Malaysian firm he accuses of trafficking him. He's been threatened with lawsuits. I think one was officially filed last week and he's got a court case coming up. So his nightmare ordeal hasn't really ended even though he's left Cambodia. He's now facing kind of legal warfare to shut up and keep his, his mouth shut essentially. Unbelievable. When he arrived at the compound, which I understand was originally built as a casino to attract wealthy Chinese, but then the, when the pandemic broke out, it was sort of repurposed into this scammers compound. When he arrived, was it immediately clear he wasn't allowed to leave? 
Like, was he given a choice of like, hey, this is actually the job. We know it's not the job that you maybe thought you were applying for, but this is still going to be a good paying gig. Just go along with it. Or was it clear cut? He was sort of a hostage at that point. From my conversations with him, he didn't have a choice over the matter. His passport was confiscated. Victory Paradise Resort is a, essentially a gated compound too. It's not a casino in which you can, like Vegas, you can walk in off the street. These are gated compounds in which once you're in, you need to be let out. He said there were guards patrolling with guns. It was essentially a hostage situation in which he was told he couldn't leave. If he tried to leave, he'd be um, threatened with physical violence. And another very intimidating tactic they use is they threaten to sell you to other centers. So indentured labor is a big part of this in which troublesome workers are sold between centers. So if you're a difficult worker, they'll say, we'll sell you to another center in which they're a lot stricter. If you make trouble for us here, you'll end up in Myanmar where the abuses are even more severe. Myanmar is a bit of a black hole. There's a, there's a civil war going on there right now. There's a coup. If you think it's bad in Cambodia, where there's some semblance of political stability, if you end up in Myanmar, you're, you're shut off from the world. There's no authorities coming in to save you in Myanmar. So it's, it's the argument of, if you think this is bad, we'll show you bad. Wait till you get to Myanmar. I cannot even imagine, right? I mean, this, like, I'm my heart is beating faster just even listening to the story. It's incredible he was able to escape from this. Are there workers in the compound, though, who are there of their free will? Or is everybody in a similar situation where they've been trafficked? It was hard to fully gauge the proportion of traffic to kind of voluntary workers. Bill Stan and one other person I spoke to anonymously said they thought it was like around 50-50. Some people there earn good money. Like if you're a compliant worker, you do your job well, you, you can earn decent money. You, you can get rewarded well. You, you're not going to be beaten if you just do your job, shut up, do your job and work as they ask you to. But when we say thousands of people who are there not willingly, who are there under the, the threat of violence, under the threat of being trafficked to another centre. And Bills was in a Malaysian-run centre. And I got the sense that the Malaysian-run one was less harsh than the Chinese-run ones or the Myanmar-run ones. The Chinese-run ones sound brutal. These are people trafficked from China with no connections in Cambodia. They are totally cut off from friends, family. The Chinese-run centers sound extremely harsh. If you don't follow the rules, there's videos online. You just have to go on, on Twitter, you just have to go on uh, TikTok to find videos, countless videos of people being tasered, beaten, beaten brutally, not slaps. These are kind of baseball bats, people bleeding from their mouths, people unconscious on the floor, people being tased. There's no end to these kind of videos online. If you're not compliant, there are accounts of mysterious deaths, people either by suicide or being pushed, jumping off the, the roofs of buildings in, in these centers. And they, these aren't especially uncommon. They're, if you Google news reports of mysterious deaths around these casinos, there are five or six deaths and those are just the ones that are reported. I'm not sure what's more tragic, the victims of the, the financial scams or the stories you're telling me now. It's, I have to wonder, where is the government in this? Are they you know, just looking the other way? Or are they being bribed and kind of complicit in the operation? What, what's the situation in that perspective? It's slightly different for each. So Myanmar, Laos and Cambodia are the three kind of major hubs of this stuff. Laos it's the main center is within this special economic zone called the Golden Triangle, SEZ. That's essentially 
a slice of Laos, which is Chinese run. It's totally beyond the reach of Lao authorities. It's a special economic zone which has been leased on a 99-year lease to a man called Zhao Wei, who's a, a US-sanctioned international criminal. He runs the special economic zone there, and he, that was a major casino called the King's Romans Casino, which has been implicated in human trafficking and money laundering. And they've since pivoted to scam center operations since the pandemic. And the issue there is just Lao authorities just can't access it. It's essentially a, a law of its own. Like it's a little jungle casino which has its own security force. They use their own currency. They have their own prison inside the special economic zone. And so Lao authorities, I think they've managed to enter once or twice, but I would imagine that was at the behest of the special economic zone authorities who said, okay, you can come in. In Cambodia, it's a bit more complicated. This stuff isn't hidden behind a kind of curtain of, of an SEZ. It's a bit more out in the open. But it's so intertwined with the highest levels of government. The people who own these compounds are often, if not directly, then indirectly linked to the highest levels of government in Cambodia. And it's such a money spinner. And the bribery, I imagine, which almost certainly happens to sustain these centres, is so vast that shutting them down is kind of counterintuitive for the Cambodian government, which is already struggling under pandemic conditions to go and shut down this hunt, like this industry that's probably generating hundreds of millions of dollars for them, if not billions of dollars for them. And while those kind of figures aren't going to make huge, too big a splash in somewhere like the US, in Cambodia, Laos, countries of GDPs of fractions of the US, Laos is 19 million, Cambodia is only marginally more than that. If you've got an industry that's generating a couple billion dollars, say, a year, and you're getting a nice chunk of that, you're not going to go out of your way to shut it down during a pandemic. You're talking about something that could easily double or triple the GDP of the entire country in, in just a few well-positioned payoffs. So I can imagine there's probably very, very little support for actually taking action that would, would either free these people or stop the criminal activity being run. Is there any hope here? There, there were certainly people who were independent of the government attempting to make, make some inroads of positive progress on this topic that you talked about in your article. Any, anything to be optimistic as you, as you look at the situation? So I think shame on Cambodia's international reputation is quite a potent tool to some extent. As much as they can be quite overt and shameless in their criminal activities in this country, they still need foreign investment. They still don't want to be sanctioned. They still don't want to be seen as this enclave of criminal activity. And um, the last couple of weeks since a couple of stories about this major, like international stories about this broke, Cambodia was downgraded to tier three on the US State Department's human trafficking index which is the lowest ranking possible. It downgrades Cambodia from making some effort to combat human trafficking to not making any effort to combat human trafficking. And that's quite embarrassing thing for the Cambodian government. They came out and rejected it, said it was politically motivated, as they always do. But this is stuff they don't want attached to their name. Saar Keng, the Minister of Interior here, he has since said that all foreigners are going to be audited essentially to make sure there's no human trafficking going on in the last couple of weeks it felt like a slightly weird veiled threat against like not just the kind of the people they should be targeting these censors the chinese criminal diaspora but also any foreigners looking into it reporting on it journalists that kind of thing too it felt slightly veiled 
they're talking about you, Alistair, not about the people who are actually trafficking <laughs> people. Uh, they they want to shut down your, your efforts of reporting is what yeah, it sounds it, like to me. It felt, the language felt broad. Let, let's just say that. It didn't say we're going to look into human trafficking. It's going to look at these, these specific areas. It just said we're going to audit all foreigners in Cambodia except for diplomats. That was their wording. Diplomats are exempt. Everyone else is going to be audited to make sure there's no human trafficking going on. Or something to that effect. It's good news, though, that, you know, the reporting you've been doing, that other journalists are trying to put a a spotlight on this activity, the little bit of effect we can have with this podcast, I'm I'm definitely going to put the word out. I mean, this is a terrible situation on both sides, right? The the people who are being forced to work in these centers and then the victims of the theft that's being executed on the other side. I think we tracked last year about 15 billion in cryptocurrency related criminal activity in total. I think about 7 billion of that was scam and fraud related of all types. And so you think about, you know, one sixth, one seventh of that could potentially be attributed to the type of activity we've talked about on the podcast. That's just staggering the scale of operation here. Clearly something that we need to pay attention to, keep the international pressure on the situation if that can have any influence on the Cambodian government at a minimum and potentially on Laos and, and Myanmar as well. Thank you for taking the time to, to explain this. I, it's been a, a pleasure to meet you and, uh, you know, I wish you good luck and continued success here uh, reporting on these really important topics, Alistair. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key. We're releasing new episodes weekly, so if you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe, review, and of course, share with your friends. Here's something to think about while you wait for the next one. Cryptocurrency prices have cooled from the all-time highs seen in 2021, but NFT collectors haven't seemed to notice. As of August 4th, Chainalysis estimated that over $43 billion have been sent to NFT marketplaces. That's more than the total from all of last year. We've also seen some exciting news. Just in the last few weeks, Pearson, the textbook publisher, announced plans to sell textbooks as NFTs, presumably hoping to capture a share of the large secondary sales market. And of course, Tiffany & Co., the jewelry company, sold out their 250-piece collection called NFTIF, that for 30 ETH came with an NFT and a real-world diamond pendant modeled on a CryptoPunk. For more information about everything happening in Web3, download your copy of the 2022 State of Web3 report via the link in the show notes.